Thank you so much for being a listener of the Deep Believer Show. We love our listeners, we pray for our listeners, and we love to hear from our listeners. So if you have anything you'd like to say, if you have any testimonies, or if you have any questions, leave us a voice message. We'd love to hear from you. Again, we would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for being a listener of The Deep Believer Show. Hi, everyone. This is Jennifer Bagnashi with Deep Believer. Today, our guest, yes, guest plural, we have Rodney and Jennifer Williams. Rodney blew himself up. That's right. He blew himself up in a trailer, making a substance that he was not supposed to be making. But before this all happened, he had a life of turmoil. But all this led up to Jesus Christ. And you're going to want to hear this story. Rodney and Jennifer Williams, thank you so much for being with us today. For having Thank us. you so much. So Rodney, tell us, I always start with this. How did you grow up? Were your parents believers or were they not believers? Yes, they uh they were believers, you know, they took us to church and stuff. You know, I accept they were worldly Christians, you know what I'm saying? Uh had some big falling outs on the way to church, you know, and uh between the, my my daddy and my mom all but they did take us to church and we did get a, a foundation there. And of course, at a young age, you know, I was uh, sexually molested. And, uh, and because they taught me about this Jesus at a young age, I turned to the Jesus. I had a childlike faith and, and was praying to him. I say praying, you know, we can say praying, but I was actually talking to him. And, and, uh, and he spoke to me. And the two things I remember him telling me that, uh, that uh, I will protect you and that one day you're gonna preach my word, you know? And that's uh, that's something that I remember, uh, I remember uh, growing up. You just said that you were molested. How old were you when you were molested? And do you know the person who abused you? Now this was uh, four, I'd say four years old. And uh, it was a friend of the family. And, uh, you know, we didn't, I, and I didn't ever mention it. I was ashamed of it. And I never even brought it out until I was up in, in my mid twenties, you know, before I even mentioned it to my parents, you know. So, uh, and you know, being young, I really don't didn't know know that friend or the family that well. Maybe a, one or two times he'd been to our house, you know. But uh, it was it was traumatic, you know, traumatic being young like that. Being a boy, I was ashamed of it. You know, I didn't want to tell anybody. Did that have any emotional effect on you afterward? Yes, yes, had some, you know, very very major issues uh you know upon me you know and someone ever mentioned before is that uh you know as a young child i think about it you know after god had told me that uh, i would preach his word one day and that he'd protect me i kept having these continuous dreams of snakes being in my bed and we had a top bunk you know and i would get up and dance around have these snakes in my bed you know and and I look back, you know, and I feel like that was a demonic attack, even at that young age, because I was tormented by the sexual abuse that had taken place. And then these snakes, these dreams of these snakes, or, you know, it was real to me that these snakes were in the bed with me. I remember my brother was on the bottom bunk, and one night he got up, and he was hollering, Rodney, 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 and I hollered, catch me, and I jumped off, I jumped off the top bunk on top of my brother, and I killed him, you know. Uh, uh, so, uh, but, you know, I think about that, that uh, I, was under, I was under attack, you know, as a, as, a, as a young child. Let's move on a little bit to when you were 12 years old at youth camp. 
what happened to you at 12 years old at youth camp that started your road to a very interesting life, so to say? Well, I had an older brother, and, uh, you know, they were doing things they shouldn't have been doing, you know. They had the rock band, some friends down the road had that. But when we went off to church camp, I got around some, the friend I was hanging out with, he had an older brother uh, that come up to the camp, and, and uh, we got out there with him, and they had marijuana, and I had like, you know, I'd done it all my life. You know, we got out there at 12 years old, smoking marijuana, and got high for the first time, and and uh, it was, it was, it uh, was, uh, the beginning, you know, uh, you know, it made me sick pretty much, you know, uh, and made me real dizzy. But, you know, it was the beginning. It was uh, the lead way to lead me in the beginning, uh, do the do the marijuana, do the different drugs. Uh, the starting point, I guess, is what you'd say. And you said you were at church camp, right? This was this you started smoking marijuana for the first time at church camp. Yeah, that's fine. Where were you? I mean, did anyone in leadership see you or was it behind the church where where was uh, it these uh we're out in the middle of the woods and uh you know large large acreage woods pond the whole nine yards we went out in the middle of the woods and, and uh you know smoked marijuana got high and of course i'm trying to i'm trying to be act like i'm sober but i'm i'm high as a kite and i climbed up on my head and i thought i was gonna fall off it was it was uh it was a miracle I didn't get caught, put it that way, because I was, I was sick, you know, it made me sick, you know, for the first time getting high. Uh, but uh, it was uh, definitely just a starting point. And from there, you were hooked, right? Yeah, well, just, just, just that lifestyle, you know, being rebellious, you know. Uh, one of my friends, my mom and them didn't drink, but I had a friend whose mom and them did drink. They had an open bar, and I was going in there and stealing the liquor and then replacing it with water. Because uh, they had certain levels they kept up with, make sure nobody was drinking their alcohol, and we would we'd fill up, you know, fill it back up with water or or different liquids, you know, to bring it back up to that level. I guess when they was having their parties, you know, nobody was getting drunk because we didn't we didn't drink all their alcohol, you know, as uh, young young men. So you were twelve years old then. Well, let's progress on to high school. So by high school, you are strung on drugs. So tell us about that life for you. And well, what happened? Mm -hmm. Just in that party lifestyle. Now, I was in good shape, too. You know, I did sports. I was good in football. I uh, was into karate. I uh, was a runner. I, I ran long distance. Uh, but continuously, it started off just on the weekends, you know, smoking the weed, drinking the alcohol, going to the parties. And then it just progressed, you know, that it wasn't, it wasn't just during the week. I, we were stopping off getting beer before. You know, I had drink a uh quart of beer before I went to school every morning, you know. And that was just like the money my mom would give me for lunch. We'd go buy a quart of beer every morning before school, slam it, and then go to school. And it just progressed. You know, we'll start off slow and a good time. It just progressed. I needed more and more and more uh to reach the same feeling that I had to start off with. Did your parents know about the drugs? Because I know you say your parents weren't drinkers. So did they know about the drugs and alcohol? They found, uh, they found rolling papers. They found uh, marijuana. Me and my brother both. There wasn't a whole lot they could do. They could punish us, but that was about it. You know, we were going to do what we was going to do. You know. And then your senior year, something tragic happened. What was it? Yeah, well, we had a, a party, a senior party at a friend of ours' house, and we went over there and we were playing quarters where we were flipping the quarters into the cup and slamming the drinks and everybody got extremely drunk 
And then we went to take some friends home that night. On the way home, uh, there had been rain, extreme rain that night where the water was all across the road. And, and the girl was driving. I was in the back seat. My best friend was in the front seat. And a high rate of speed, she was going way too fast. I said, you need to slow down. But she didn't slow down. We hit a thing of water. We hydroplaned, hit a ditch, hit a culvert, and it bounced the car up. A brand new Mustang and flew like 50 feet in the air and cut a telephone pole sideways uh, uh, with that car. And, uh, you know, of course, I don't remember all this. You know, I was I got knocked out. And, and so a friend of mine was... Uh, he he come by and they said I would come too and be screaming and hollering and I'd pass back out. But anyway, it took over an hour and a half to put me and my best friend down. Uh, when they got us to the hospital, they would pronounce him dead on arrival at the hospital. And then a nurse would find a pulse and then he'd be in a coma for six months. And then he's been under his mother's care uh, for since 1983. And he can't talk, uh, can't walk. Uh, uh, he can he can get around, uh, he can get around, but not real well. You know, it's been under his mother's care for all those years. Uh, my legs uh, were all broke up. A uh, big chunk of my femur was knocked out where my right leg shorted my left. I got bars still in my leg and pins where they put my ankles back together. And I would graduate from high school out of a wheelchair. Wow. Now back to your friend. Um, since the car accident, I know you said he can't speak um, or walk. Do you have you seen him since? And when you see when you saw him, do you feel as if he recognizes you or that he remembers you? He's he's got his right facilities. I mean, he can uh, you know, his right mind. He's just he was in a coma and, and just you know, he just messed up his muscles and his functions. But as far as being in the right mind, he's in his right mind. He knows who I am. He just can't speak. He can't uh uh, you know, they they've got him up on the walker, uh and uh, but you know he's uh, he's really just really messed him up because I guess it's you know his muscles been in that coma for all that time and and the injuries he had he had all kinds of surgeries and different things that he's been through through the years and but his mom was stuck right there with him the whole time and uh, you know and, and loved him and brought him through it you know and kept him kept him uh, you know kept him in check I guess. Your jug of choice during high school, during this time, even right before you graduated, what was it? What drug of choice was that? I guess, uh, I mean, we, we could constantly uh, drink alcohol. Alcohol is a continuous thing. And then we continuously, just like the alcohol, we had marijuana. And we we uh, we reached off into different things. And when it was available, like cocaine and different pills and things, you know, but uh uh, but marijuana and alcohol was the main, uh, the main, the main thing we did right going through high school and, and the party, uh, the party that we did. Yeah. And of course, after high school, we got more into more in depth uh, drugs. You know, uh, addicted to cocaine, to crack cocaine, and of course methamphetamines and different things like that. Mm -hmm. And you told me that the marijuana was the gateway. Why was it the gateway? Well, it's uh, you know. I always tell people, if, you, uh, if you're still a dime, you're still a quarter. It's better money, you know. And uh, and marijuana was fun; made you feel good. But you know, uh, cocaine's a better high; makes you feel better. Methamphetamine's a better high. Uh, the uh, oxycotton, the different the different pills are different highs, stronger highs, and uh, you know, takes you to a different level, you know. And uh, 
you know. So uh, if you you like the marijuana, of course you're gonna you're gonna like the you know the, the highs much better on the other stronger drugs, you know. And uh, you know, there again, you know, you say you won't do it, but you know, somebody offers it to it and you try and you experience that high. That's what you want now. That's your new uh, that's your new drug of choice, you know. So for those people who believe that marijuana is a safe drug, what do you say to them? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, just like alcohol, it's, it's, you know, the, uh, a lot of people think that I've had people tell me that, uh, you know, I don't want to do cocaine causes me problems, but, uh, you know, marijuana does not, you know, but, uh, you know, they, 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 they enjoy the great high from like cocaine and different things. So they're doing alcohol and maybe they're doing marijuana, uh, you know, they're enjoying it. Uh, it lows, uh, you know, it lowers their standard, you know, standard where they will being high that they'll not making good decisions, they'll go to the higher drug. You know what I'm saying? It'll, it's like a gateway, uh, take them to that higher drug. You know, I'm enjoying this high, but I know there's a better high and here it is. I'm going to it. You know, just like the money thing. Hey, if you you're still a dime, you're still a quarter, you know what I'm saying? Because it's better money. Uh when you're enjoying this high and but you just want more, you're gonna step up to the higher, you know, the higher uh, the higher drug, you know what I'm saying, which, uh, which will take you to a higher level. I agree. So are you saying that for those who smoke where marijuana, but don't smoke or do other drugs right now, you believe that eventually it leads to stronger drugs because it's not enough after a while? You know, most most people, you know, most people, I would say yeah, that's, that's true. You know, I've seen people also that you know they they smoked uh, they smoked marijuana since they was in junior high, and they're still smoking marijuana for the last forty years. Uh, and uh, they uh, it's it's kept them from accomplishing a lot of things, man, because their whole state of life has been that they've been high. You know, what I'm saying in this in this high state, you know, of uh, you know. Just getting by, just getting by, but never fully accomplishing, never fully doing what they were created to do. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it, you know, they had a separate, they just lined down in a certain level, but never truly went to uh, to any higher drugs than that. You know, but uh, the majority of people that I've seen, uh, you know, they they're not satisfied with that they want a higher, they want a bigger high, greater high, and uh, that's people that's going to go to extremes like I did and. Uh, get addicted and, and eventually destroy their lives. Yeah. So let's go back to the car accident. Did the car accident change your life? Did it make <laughs> you think, okay, maybe I should stop doing, maybe I shouldn't drink anymore. Maybe I shouldn't do drugs anymore. Did it change you at uh, all? That never crossed my mind. I never drank, stopped drinking or anything like that. Uh, what it did was I was senior class favorite, good in sports, and an instant my life was changed. So now my issues, my hurts, my pains have just tripled. Now a lot of things I leaned on, which was my my popularity, uh, the sports that I was good in. Now I can't do them, and, and the drugs become more of a crutch. Also, they were prescribing me pain pills for the different pains that I had. And of course, I'm abusing them, drinking alcohol with them. And of course, when they cut me off from that, I had to go to the streets to buy the pills and the different things, you know. Uh, to continue that high, you know, so, uh, so yeah, it changed everything. Of course, I got, you know, I was in a wheelchair, you know, for like a year, and then I was on crutches and on a cane and, and had a limp, and, and I'm trying to look normal, and, and I did look normal.
had his back when so so yeah, it, it was it was it was a yeah, you know, a ego problem, whatever. I you know, it was it, it it was not good, put it that way. So after that your parents put you into rehab and psych ward. Tell us why did they put you in a rehab and a psych ward and what did you how was your mindset while you were in there and how did it affect you? And I was later on down the road after I'd really gotten uh gotten deep into the uh to the higher drugs, you know, uh the uh crack cocaine, the methamphetamines. I went off to live in the Mexican Mafia, uh, you know, run drugs, did some really crazy stuff out there. And it wasn't about making money, it's about feeding on addiction, you know, a way to have a connection to the drugs to be able to feed uh to feed my my addiction. Anyway, I come back and being high on the methamphetamines and the crack cocaine, uh, I did any kind of drug there was, you know, to numb, just to numb the pain, the issues that I had, just wanted to stay high all the time. And that was my whole life. It was like a God in my life, you know, and it was a God in my life because it was first preeminent in my life. And uh, I'd been to Houston running, running drugs, uh, and of course, you know, they're telling you, you get caught, that's 15, you know, they're gonna give you 15 years, you know, are you willing to do this? Of course I was, but at the same time, I'm still scared and, and the, the, the methamphetamines, also the crack cocaine puts you on a, a high intensity of paranoia and fear. So, and you're thinking about the 15 years that you're going to get, if you get pulled over and caught carrying these drugs. So doing this and then coming back from that, man, I was about a nervous wreck. I was, you know, I was about to have a nervous breakdown, you know, and uh, I told my mom I needed help. And that's when she would uh, send me to the hospital and they would put me on a psych ward and then put me through a secular rehab there at the hospital. Now being in the hospital, you said that they took away your solution. What do you mean by they took away your solution? Well, as a, after being blessed as a kid, I had hurts, I had pains, I had issues, and uh, fallen man, fallen world, and the drugs and alcohol became my solution, you know, and it made me forget about my hurts, my pains, my issues, it numbed the pain, it made me laugh, you know, the Bible says pleasure, sense for season, it made me laugh, uh, brought about a good time, uh, you know. And uh, I always tell people, it's kind of like an infection. You got an infection, you start putting Band-Aids on the infection to cover it up, but the infection continues to grow, and it takes more Band-Aids to cover that infection up. And just like the drugs and alcohol, it was a cover. It would cover it up, make me forget about it, but as you, uh, you would need more and more and more, more alcohol, more drugs to try and get the same feeling. And, and what you were doing was getting deeper and deeper and deeper in the bondage of addiction. Wow. And then how long were you in the hospital for? And how long were you in the psych ward for? Uh, just a couple of days on the psych ward. And they were, they were basically detoxing me uh, and then put me through the secular rehab. And, uh, you know, it's supposed to be a 30 day rehab. After 10 days, my insurance run out. So they sent me to the house, you know, and uh, told me that, uh, I need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, to be there every day that I could get down there, you know. Uh, they told me I had the disease of addiction. Uh, I had the disease of addiction I was born with, and I've been to recovery, treatment. Well, they told me the third phase of this is relapse, you know, and of course they're absolutely right that, you know, 
you're eventually going to relapse because the right storm of life is going to hit you and you can't have it. You're going to run back to your solution, which is the drugs and the alcohol. And uh, I had a lot more problems than alcohol, so I went to the Narcotics Anonymous. And, of course, that's where uh, I couldn't bring my solution there. We're leaving our solution you know, out there, away from us, and we would come in there. And other people had gotten away from their solution, which was the drugs and alcohol, coming in there try to, in community, trying to encourage each other, telling war stories about what happened when we went back to our solutions, going to jail, what a mess we made with our families. And, of course, uh, we're miserable. I'm miserable because I'm back to my original hurts, pains, and issues. They're back to their original hurts, pains, and issues. We're being there drinking a pot of coffee, smoking a pack of cigarettes. You know, I'm miserable. They're miserable. And we're encouraging each other to keep coming back, you know. And, of course, getting our uh, chips for clean time. You know, clean time is a big thing. And, you know, and I tell people all the time, hey, I was, I was clean and sober before I ever started doing drugs and alcohol. I had issues. I had pains, hurts, issues. And the drugs and alcohol was my solution to those hurts, pains, and issues, you know? So it's not about clean time, you know? And a little back to the psych ward, I'm thinking, why did they choose to put you in a psych ward? What was it that made them feel like they needed to put you in there? I was, I was pretty crazy, you know? Uh, kind of out of my mind. They would... uh It'd be a locked door in there, and of course they would monitor you. And after so many days, I can't remember how many exact days I was in there, but eventually they would move me over into the treatment center. And a lot of times they do that to detox you, and part of that was detoxing you. You know, making sure you know when people detox, you know, they can do some crazy stuff. Some people die detoxing off the drugs and alcohol. Uh, so they were monitoring me and and seeing how my mental state was too, because I was I was about like I said, I was a nervous. A nervous breakdown. I was I was kind of psychotic, you know, crazy, you know, from uh, from the fear and the paranoia and all the different things I've been experiencing. And I wasn't in my right head. And I was seeing visions. I was uh, it was it was crazy. Uh, you begin to imagine. So that's another thing on like methamphetamines. You you have visions. You think things are happening, which are not happening. You think people are police, who are not the police. I mean, you start seeing stuff that ain't there. It's 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 pretty pretty intense and you believe it you know in your mind it's real you know so that's just um, part of the demonic drug that you're on you know as they, they get a hold of your your mind and begin to put thoughts in your mind so did anything change once you left the hospital once you le left the psych ward did it help you in the slightest at all well you know, i had my mind up i wanted to be sober i wanted to be clean uh, but you know, the, uh, they had told me that I was born with a disease of addiction and I'd always be an addict. And I did, I went to the meetings, you know, and I stayed clean. I stayed sober. Uh, but I was, like I said, I was a miserable individual, you know, uh, and just waiting, you know, waiting. And, and just like they said, eventually the right storm of life hit me and I run back to the only thing I knew, which was the drugs and the alcohol. Uh, I always teach once an addict, always an addict. Uh, you know, is true. And the reason, because of our endemic nature, you know, I always give the verse, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, pulling down strongholds, casting down imaginations, and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought that will be of Christ. It begins with imagination. Imagination comes a thought. Thought comes a choice. Choice comes an action. The action becomes I have a repeated area, you know, so you continuously do something for say like 60 days, do something good, like reading your Bible the next 60 days, it can become a habit. 
or drinking alcohol or doing drugs next 60 days, it can become a habit, you know. With a habit, you can break it with a strong enough motivation, like uh, you're about to go to jail, you're about to lose your family. Uh, so a habit you can break, but a repeated area of failure, which becomes demonically enforced, is a stronghold. So, you know, everybody's praying for this addict and and uh, the church is praying for him, the town's praying for him. He's determined he's not going to go back. And uh, he does good. He does good. He does good. The right storm hits him and he, he relapses, goes back out into the world, you know. And, and that's why once an addict, always an addict is true, because under the identic nature, you're not strong enough to defeat uh, this demonic realm. And that's, of course, that's why Christ, Christ, uh, Colossians 2, 14 and 15, says blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made it show them openly, confident over them in it. Through Christ Jesus, Christ has defeated all principalities and powers. So when we're in Christ, uh, we now have a new identification, and we still now have the power through Christ uh, to walk in the victory that he won for us upon the cross. So did you believe it when the physicians told you that you were born an addict? Well, you know, uh, it didn't give me a whole lot of hope. I was brought up in church, you know, uh, but uh, I really didn't, I didn't, you know, like I said, it was a discouragement to me when they told me that you were born this way, that you'll always be this way. You know, I brought up in church. I didn't have the knowledge, you know, you know, uh, it didn't sound right, but you know, if they said it, you know, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just buy into this, you know, and, but they didn't, they didn't give me no encouragement at all. When I went, you know, I started going to the Narcotics Anonymous and doing, trying to be there, trying to do it right. In the back of my mind, I knew that uh, it was just a matter of time. If, I, if they were right, I was going to relapse. And they were, they were right. I did relapse because the right storm hit me. I went back to my solution. The only thing I knew, which was the drugs and the alcohol. Mm, so going to that, you mentioned that, and I want you to explain this. You said that you and your friends were fasting to the devil. Why did you say that? And what does that mean? Uh, now, uh, the, uh, when I, when I did relapse from the, uh, uh, you know, when I'd been trying to be clean, went to the, uh, the treatment center and was doing the narcotics and all, and I did good. I chaired meetings. I had my chips for being clean, but I was miserable. I was still missing something, you know. I was lacking something. I was not satisfied. I was still looking for something. And, and then the right storm hit me and I relapsed. And I went back out and methamphetamine was a big thing at this time. You know, everybody's doing it. And of course, I did crack cocaine. I did the pills. I did everything, anything I could get my hands on. So, but on methamphetamines, you go 10 or more days without eating or sleeping. In reality, what you're doing, you're fasting to the devil. You know, and in the Bible, they fast. They don't eat. You know, it seems some like Moses, uh, Jesus fasting for 40 days and Becoming one with God, you know, becoming one with God. You're not satisfying the flesh, you're becoming one with God. But on the flip side of that, on methamphetamines, you're going 10 or more days without eating or sleeping. What you're doing, you're fasting to the devil. You're opening up the gates of your mind and becoming one with the demonic realm. And the reason I can prove that is because what started off being fun and exciting before long, man, you're engulfed with the paranoia, the deepest fear. And go for the deepest fear that you can't even imagine until you experience it. It's not a normal fear. It's, it is a supernatural fear. And the Bible says, 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 
I want to bounce back really quickly because I remember this one thing you told me prior is that when they try to help you in the hospital, they try to heal your body, but they didn't aim for healing the soul. Could you explain yeah. that? Yes. Uh, I guess in the secular world, they're, they're, they're worried about the, the body. They're doing behavioral modification, changing people, places, and things. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but uh, they, they, the, the spiritual condition of the heart is, is the problem. You know? And of course, uh, the demonic strongholds that have been built up in your life, you know, and they're not, they're not addressing these issues, of course. Uh, and I've seen people in the rehab, they come in there and uh, they begin to eat healthy and they're out there pumping the waist. And when they leave out of there, they're, they're big muscle bound and they look like they're ready for the beach or anyway, they look good, you know. And then the ones that do make it back, you know, they come in there and they're all beat down, skinny again. They look horrible, you know, because that was not their problem. You know, a small part of the problem was their physical, but that was a small part of it. It's a heart issue. We have a heart issue, uh, you know, uh, a rebellious heart, a sinful heart. And what we need, we need to be born again. We need to be reconnected back to God through Christ, become new creations in Christ. And then begin to allow God to renew our mind, to transform us, change us into what he's, he's, he's made us to be in Christ. Amen. Amen. And you also mentioned that they tried to heal the spirit as well. How did they try to heal the spirit in the body? Well, the body we already covered, but how did they try to heal the spirit? Changing people, places and things, uh, behavioral modification, you know. And which that would actually be the soul behavior modification, you know, for you to be able to change the way you, you know, you think, uh, you're doing things, uh, change the people you're around, the places that you go. Uh, and of course, you know, physical is part of it also. It should be eating healthy, you should be, and staying away from these certain places. And I always tell that, and that's true. You know, I always tell people, if you don't want to fall down, don't walk in slippery places. There's places you shouldn't go. There's things you shouldn't do. Uh, but in the spiritual realm, they do not address the spiritual realm in the sacrament. And that's that's the key. If we got a heart issue, uh, we need to repent, turn from our sins, put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And justification is where we get reconnected back to the Spirit of God. And then with the Spirit of God in us, then God begins to make us what he's already declared us to be. He begins to transform us, change us through the process of sanctification, making us into the image of Christ, giving us the mind of Christ, which is a new mind. Uh, renewing our mind, giving us the mind of Christ. And in the kingdom of God that you now belong to, uh, God begins to change us where we don't walk in the natural, in the five senses. We begin to walk by faith and not by sight. We begin to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh, which is the old endemic nature, which is in rebellion against God. You know? I like what you just said. If you don't want to fall down, don't walk in slippery places. I like that a lot. And it's so true. So you mentioned, let's fast forward back to where we left off when you and your friends were fasting to the devil, fasting to the devil. That's right. uh, and you mentioned that you considered yourself a sorcerer. Why did you consider yourself as a sorcerer? People that's going to be cast into the lake of fire, you know, the Bible talks about, you know, sorcerers, you know, and a sorcerer, someone who's mixing these chemicals together. Uh, to make the poison, you know, and that's uh, all the different chemicals that we had, you know, like the anhydrous ammonia, uh, the lithium by, uh, batteries and the different things. I mean, this is poison. I mean, you it, it would kill you, you know, and uh, mixing all these things up and it's smoking uh, like a witch's brew, you know, and, and you're going from a 
uh, a liquid to a solid. Anyway, the uh, a sorcerer, you know, you're, you're creating something which is demonically enforced, and then you're feeding it to these other people. And these people are coming there, they're begging, their uh, girls are straining their bodies to uh, receive this poison, man, because they're hooked on it, Joe. And, and people are going out stealing and do whatever it takes. Uh, where they can receive this poison, you know, that you've cooked up, you know, and it's, it's sorcery, you know, uh, it's, it's a poison uh, mixed together, uh, poisoning these people. And now it's a God, it's a, it's a demonic realm. People are, people are worshiping this because they're, they'll give their whole life, their whole soul, everything for this poison to continue to feed themselves uh, with this, this, this poison that we're given, which was methamphetamines. Now, so you were making methamphetamine at the time, did you feel remorse or did you, I guess, feel bad for those who were coming to you high and strung out on drugs? Or was your mind just focused on making more, getting high? I lost worries about feeding my addiction, you know, and, uh, you know, the different people, they would bring different things uh, to, uh, you know, like different ingredients uh, they would bring, they would be able to get, uh, get it or they bring money. Uh, yeah, they were doing whatever they could where they could feed their own addiction. And of course, me cooking, it was to feed my own addiction. And uh, it was just just feeding the point. And it was also uh, a power high, you know, that you're the, you, you had control. You know what I'm saying? They wanted what you had. So it was a power control, you know, like pride control, demonic, you know. Uh, that you had power over these people, you know, and it was, it, it's a, uh, it's a power control that you felt in, in, you know, like a pride uh, built up within you, which was, you know, demonically controlled, you know? Uh, so there was a lot more to it uh, than you'd imagine. Uh, but, you know, we were poisoning these people. Of course, I had no, I, I wasn't worried about them. I wasn't worried about myself. I didn't love them. I didn't love myself. If they died, that was on them. You know, they took too much. That was on them. You know, I was, you know, I, I, I could care less. You know, that was, that was the mindset I had. And you were so high strung on drugs that you said you thought police officers were hanging out in trees watching <sighs> you. Yes, yes, yes. And that's the paranoia, the fear. Just, I mean, you're so engulfed with this fear that is beyond natural, you know, that, uh, that everyone's the police, you know, that you police are in the trees, police are under the trailer. Uh, just so engulfed with Paranoid. Now, were there police in the trees and were there police under your trailer? Oh, uh, no, I, yeah, it was in my mind, you know, but uh, now there were police looking for us. There was police after us and, and some of them were police because <laughs> we, we, uh, you know, they, they, they were, they were, they were after us, you know, and they were after uh, what we were doing, you know, but we, we took it to a much, you know, under the influence, we, we, we were imagining things that they weren't there, you know what I'm saying? So the police, yes, they were looking at us. They were wanting uh, to bust us, uh, but what we were imagining in our minds was was not was not true, you know. And it's that's just the effects of the uh, methamphetamines. So take us to the night where you blew yourself up. What happened? Tell us all the details. June nineteenth, two thousand two. My mom had sent me to another rehab because I. I told her I needed help, and uh, I got there, and I told people I was like Huey Herman on Slim Fast. I was skin and bones, you know, staying up 10 more days without eating or sleeping, you know. I mean, I looked horrible, you know. You got a little food, got a little rest, and got around some people like me talking about what great dope cooks we were, talking all that trash talk about the wind we had, 
Jesus said, no man, having put his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So you look back, you're going back. And that's exactly what I did. I left out of there, out of the rehab, the Christian rehab, and went back out into the world, back to my drugs. We went back to my God, which is the drugs and the alcohol. And about three weeks later, I'm cooking methamphetamines in a small trailer. I got the doors bolted down. I'm hiding up for days, and I'm not taking those safety precautions like I did at the very beginning. When we first started off, I'm taking all these safety precautions, ventilation is proper, making sure everything's clean and done right. Now, you know, this is a couple of years later, I'm cooking the methamphetamine, and I'm not having no ventilation. I'm not worried about anything being clean or anything, any safety. I just got the doors bolted down because in my mind, there's police in the trees, police under the trailer, they're everywhere, you know, trying to get to me. And uh, the fumes built up, spark went off the heat lamp and the whole trailer uh, ignites. And then I'm trying to get the doors unlocked. Uh, and I'm trying to get the doors unlocked. Eventually the door comes open and I run outside with second and third degree burns on my body. And of course at two o'clock in the morning, I walk down to these people's house I did not know and beat on their door and uh they opened the door shocked this guy standing there all burn up and uh so the husband mr jim comes and gives me a blanket wraps me in a blanket and puts me in his car and takes me to the to the hospital you said mr jim brought you to the hospital how did you get to mr jim's area and when you got there how long was the commute and how did you even get there it was, I don't know, uh, about a quarter of a mile from the trailer that where I got set on fire at. They lived down the road about a quarter of a mile. And uh, so when I got burnt to get away from the place where we were doing, we had the drugs and stuff, uh, you know, I just took off walking. And I, I didn't know Mr. Jim, but I knew his son. And I walked down there because I knew he was involved in the same things I was involved in. And went down there and, you know, just knowing I needed help and, and I told him some crazy story about getting set on fire with gas and, you know, didn't tell him what I was doing. You know, of course, I pretty well knew that I was up to no good, you know. Uh, so uh, Mr. Jim would put a blanket on me, put me in his car, began rushing me to the hospital, you know. And, and that was the night when I, on the way to the hospital, all the times I've been in and out of jail, I cried to God. Yeah, I believe it's one God that I do as well. The devil also believed in trembled. I believed in God. God had spoken to me as a child, but I never had fully turned from my sins and trusted God for anything. I'd done things my way all those years. And so I'd never been truly born again. Uh, but this not on the way to the hospital. I hated my life. I hate everything about it, you know. Uh, all the times I've been to jail, I cried to God because I did believe in God. You know, I just wanted him to help me. He was a 911 God, you know. Uh, get me out of this mess I'm in, you know. And, and as soon as I got out of my mess, I returned right back to the drugs and the alcohol. I always tell people a dog will return to his vomit because he's still a dog. That night on the way to the hospital, I was broken, death felt like a victory. The police are looking for me. My family can't stand me. I'm, I, I just owe everybody money. I'm homeless. My life is a wreck, you know. And I just felt like death. You know, death would release me. You know, I just felt like death. If I could just die, it would release me from this pain and this hurt. And that's what I did that night. I died to the old Rodney. I cried out, Lord Jesus, you can take my eyes, my ears, anything you want. But what's left, I'm going to serve you. I made an unconditional surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ that night on the way to the hospital. And that night, the Bible says, for the heart man believes unto righteousness that night. God heard me. 
and I was born again. I become a child of God. I received a new identity. I received a lot of things I didn't realize I was receiving that night. You know, but I, my life was still a mess. It was a mess, you know. But I had become a child of God that night on the way to the hospital. Amen. Amen. So, did anyone see the explosion when? the trailer exploded there was a guy that had been there earlier you know and uh he was there but he yeah, i think he 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 got away from there you know uh because he didn't want to be involved and get arrested or whatever but when we got to the hospital uh when we got to the hospital that night i got out and uh got out of the car and Mr. Jim, of course, takes off, and I walk in there, and I look, and I only see on my left eye, and I see where the skin had rolled down over my fingernails, where you got 13, about 13 inches of skin swinging back and forth where my skin had just rolled over my, over my hands, and it was extreme pain, and they would shoot me full of morphine, and then put me in the ambulance, and we were in Mississippi, and they would take me in the ambulance across the Alabama line, and uh, would go to the uh, University of South Alabama Burn Center, you know, and that's where I would stay for, for a while, going through the skin grafts and the wound care and the different things. And this brings me back to when you mentioned to me, I don't know if we mentioned it yet or prior, but you said that even when you were a small child, Jesus promised you that you would minister for him. Did this come back to your mind when you were lying up in the hospital? Were you grateful that Jesus kept you alive? And did you think, okay, now maybe I do have a shot at ministering for God now when you gave your life to Jesus? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I was so hopeless. I was so hopeless that, uh, you know, I really had no hope. Even when I'd given my life to the Lord, I'm going to follow you, serve you. And as things began to play out, uh, when I went to the uh God began to speak to me. He spoke to me. I said, God, I'm, I'm too weak to do this. I hadn't heard God's voice since I was a child, young child. And then uh, I fully surrendered to him. And and I began, I was praying to him and, you know, telling the Father, uh, I'll do whatever you want to, but I'm too weak. I can see I won't be able to get high. I mean, I won't be able to go high. I'm cussing. I'm wearing the morphine butt now. Even though I've been born again, I was still full of the world, you know. You know, 37 years old, and I've been out in the world all those years, you know, and I was full of the world, you know. And I was legally free, but I wasn't experiencing freedom, you know. And, and the voice of God, I heard it that night, you know, and, and, and told me to go back to the home grave. You know, that's what God wanted me to go back to the home grave. And people would ask me, they'd come and say, once you go back to the home grave, I'm not going back to the home grave. I give my life to the Lord. I'm not going back to the home of grave. I'm telling people I'm not going back to the home of grave. But when I asked God, God said he uh, spoke to me and told me to go back to the home of grace. And all of a sudden, I said, you may have mine, I said, no, God spoke to me and told me to go back to the home of grace. I'm going to do whatever God tells me. And, of course, that's why I had to go for God to begin to transform me, change me, clean me up. Because I was a mess, you know. Even though I was born again, child of God, I was a mess. Well, this reminds me of how you mentioned and this is a miracle in itself that the police were looking for you, but the ambulance had driven you across state lines. So tell us about that because you could have been arrested and put in prison or, or jail. So yes, uh, tell us about that miracle. The miracle, yeah. But, uh, you know, I don't know all what's going on, but the police, you know, uh, knew, you know, they were, they were watching, watching the area pretty closely. And, uh, and I don't know how, what all went on, how it got out. But, you know, uh, when I got to the, the hospital there in Pascoe, Mississippi, uh, they immediately realized I was too, 
too bad off. And they'd be in a burn center, so they shot me, uh, uh, shot me full of the uh, pain medicine, and then put me in the ambulance and took me to South Al across the Alabama line, the South Alabama burn center. And of course, a couple of days, I think two days later, had a police, you know, a detective come and ask me some questions. Of course, I wouldn't talk to him. He had he had questions asking me about the the fire and different things. And of course, I wouldn't talk to him. It's a police officer, you know. Uh, that's just the way we were, you know, that's the, that's what we, you know, kind of like the code, you know, when we're doing the drugs and different drugs, we didn't talk to police officers, you know, and so that's pretty much, didn't say much to him, but if I'd have been in Mississippi, you know, and where it had taken place, I'd have I'd probably, like you said, went to prison or went, you know, got, got some serious trouble. So what is it exactly, what was the point or what was the catalyst? of you saying, this is it. I need to give my life to Jesus, to the God that my parents first taught me about. Well, yeah, the um, oh, people always ask me, you know, I said, I've always wanted to go to heaven. My problem is I wanted to live like hell, you know. Uh, you know, I always believed in God. Uh, but it was a breaking point in my life. The things I thought would satisfy me, but I always felt there was something in this world that was going to satisfy me completely, make me happy. And uh, some good times, you know, had good times, but nothing ever satisfied me. Nothing ever completed me. And and like all the different overdoses I did, like on the crack pipe and the different thing, I'm looking for this peak high, and then my body couldn't take where I was going to go. That's why I'm laying out there, holding my chest, having a heart attack. You know, your whole body shaking, you know, in the convulsions and different things. The uh, you know where I wanted to get. My body couldn't get there from here, you know. And of course, later on, when I got filled with the Holy Spirit, I experienced the intimate presence of God. I realized that this is what I was looking for the whole time, you know. Uh, the Bible says, Colossians 4.19, for it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. In other words, the completeness, the fullness is wrapped up in Jesus Christ, you know. And uh, we're spiritual beings and we're trying to be satisfied in a natural world and it will never happen. Uh, and like I said, uh, I searched the world over. Oh, he also, I fight for some else time. Uh, I searched the world over, thought I found true love. I, I looked all over the world thinking I was going to find what would satisfy me and complete me. And I was disappointed. Nothing, nothing satisfied me. The best things this world had to offer never satisfied me, completed me. But when I experienced the intimate presence of God, uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit, I realized I said, this is what I was looking for the whole time, you know, the intimate presence of God, you know. And the Bible says, I think Psalm 16, that will show me the path of life and my presence is fullness of joy. Everything I was looking for was in the intimate presence of God through Christ. So you're now a born again Christian. Did your speech change the way you said things? Did you still cuss? Did you still, how did your life look soon after? Or did that take time for you to change that aspect of your life? I got to the hospital that night, burn up. Um, I gave my blankety blank life to Jesus Christ. <laughs> and they shake your head, yeah, right. You know, uh, there was no change, you know, uh, any outward change at this point. You know? That's why God sent me to the home of grace, where he, uh, where he would transform me, change me, renew my mind, clean me up. I tell people, it's like I was 37 years old. It's like having a bucket full of dirt, 37 years worth of dirt, you know, and then taking a water hose. Ephesians 5, 26 calls it the washing water of the word. And the water begins to go in there and the dirt begins to come out, come out, come out. And eventually you got clear, clean water. And that was the process God began in me. 
Uh, I began to just get in his word and God began to clean me up and show me sin in my life. I'll confess and forsake it. My language changed. My life changed. Everything changed me. I seen people when I come out of the home of grace and they said, you don't sound the same. You, you I mean, nothing, you know, everything about you is different, you know. My language was different. Everything, God just cleaned me up. My language, because I cussed, I mean, uh, bad people told me I had nasty language, you know. Uh, it was, I would, I would make a sailor blush. That's how bad my language was. I used the F word uh, three times in a sentence, you know, every sentence. It was, it was, it was horrible, you know, the, the way I spoke, the way I lived, you know, and, and how God changed me. So from there, the Lord did change you and God's promises are yes and amen. And you end up becoming a minister. How did that even come about? Uh, well, after graduating from the home of grace, uh, you know, and that's where I first experienced in the three month program. Uh, that's why, you know, as a freshman in the Lord, that three and a half months, I didn't lift weights. I didn't do nothing. I just stayed in the word and I just pressed into the Lord. And, uh, one night, of course, received the feeling of the Holy Spirit, experienced his intimate presence. And it felt like a river flowing through me, the Holy Spirit, you know, and, and at night, man, I'm crying one minute, I'm laughing the next. And I said, my God, this is what I had been looking for my whole life. You know, this is what I, the intimate presence of God. Of course, I didn't realize what was happening, but that's what I understand now that I experienced the intimate presence, the fullness of the spirit. And, uh, and, and I ain't been the same since. I was in 2002. But after graduating, uh, I'm still homeless. My life is still a wreck. Uh, my daddy, who I've stolen from, we had much conflict through the years. He told me I could come and live with him. Uh, so I come and live with him. So I'm not homeless for the time being. And I got to find a job. So I go to the University of Mobile looking for a job, which is a Christian college. And one month, one day later, God had me a student there, you know. And my dad allowed me to stay there at the, his house. And he said, now that you, you're going to college and you're doing right, he said, you can stay here until you graduate from college. So I stayed at his house. And and rode back and forth 50-something 50, uh, 50 miles one way to go to college every day. And I would graduate in 2006 with a Bachelor of Arts degree in religion. Uh, I took a year of Hebrew, a year of Greek, uh, and would graduate. And uh, God would call me to pastor this, this church and would become a pastor of a church for uh, eight years. You know? Amen. Amen. So you're ministering and Jennifer, this is where you come into the picture. Tell us, I mean, how did you meet Rodney? But even before then, what did your life look like before you met Rodney? Well, I had used drugs for about 12 years and my life, I was a high school dropout, uh, um, moved out um, of my parents' house when I was 17, moved in with somebody that was selling drugs. And so for the next 12 years of my life, it was a continuous circle of addiction. And um, I got arrested, got in trouble for some prescription forgery charges. And uh, for some reason, those had sat there on the books for a couple of years, but they had not taken action on them. And I was such a liar and uh, didn't look like an addict. So when I went down to handle those charges, they had agreed to drop them down to a misdemeanor. And um, when I went back to the court to, to have the final day in court on that, I went there and um, the courtroom was cleared out. And the only people that were left was the judge, the drug court coordinator, and my sister, who I hated because she had done everything in order. She had been telling me for years that I needed help. 
Um, you know, she had made all the great choices in life and done the right thing. And um, so anyway, I didn't want to be around her because I've had to hear, you know, her preaching. And um, I knew it was going to be a bad day because she was there and she told them, do not drop her charges, put her in jail for 18 years if you have to. She's got a drug problem and she needs to go to jail and she needs some help. And so the judge, of course, put me in jail and then forced me to go to a secular rehab. And um, I hated everybody involved with that situation. I had a chip on my shoulder, didn't want to be there. But I knew if I left, I was definitely going to jail for 18 years. And so I stuck through it. And the last weekend I was there, I knew there was a God. And like Rodney was saying earlier, um, you know, I had those 911 prayers. I had been arrested before, prayed that God would help me and he would help me. And then I would, you know, two or three days later, be back out where I was before. But I made an unconditional surrender prayer while I was at rehab. I knew there was a God. I knew my life was so messed up that the only thing that was going to fix it was God because it was that bad. And I told the Lord, whatever you decide to do with me, whether it's to send me to jail for 18 years or send me back home, whatever you do with me, I am going to follow what you say. I got brought back home a couple hours away uh, in a police car. Um, Drug court hated me. They wanted to make an example out of me. I had lied to them. If you know anything about drug court, that's the the big offense is to lie to them because they can handle about anything. But when you lie to them, you know, it's over. And um, I had no car. I had two children. One was two, one was three. Um, High school dropout, no education, no money. I literally had to get... um, clothes from the thrift store at at rehab because I had no clothes to bring with me. And um, when I went back to deal with the drug court situation after going to rehab, my sister, who I treated horribly all those years, met me there and allowed me to move into her home, uh, which was about 35 miles away from drug court. Still don't have a car, still don't have a job. And then I'm toting two children in hand. And um, I didn't you know, I didn't fit in there. She'd made all the right choices. She had a normal family. Um, I knew I'd said that prayer. I knew I needed the Lord. Um, but you know, I wasn't comfortable there at first. Um, when I got to her house, she told me, she said, you need more help than what drug court can give you. You need to call my church and set up some counseling with them, some spiritual counseling. And so I called that church very um, kind, humble, older pastor, talked to him on the phone. He said, sure, we'll send somebody out to talk to you. And so had to get a ride there, had to get a babysitter to watch my children to go. And I got there and they had sent out a counselor. And I came in there and just verbally told him everything in my life. And he told me, he said, "Um, I'm not a counselor. The only thing I can tell you is you need to give your life to Christ like I did. And I thought, well, I already knew that. I thought I was coming for a step-by-step action plan (laughs) because I'm a list person. I wanted a list. And um, anyway, I continued going to church with my sister. Didn't want to go to small group because I didn't feel comfortable there. I didn't want to be in church at all because it was a very, what I call like a first Baptist church um, where people dressed up on Sunday and had their act in order. They sure as heck didn't come in dragging two children out of wedlock with drug problems and court issues and baby daddy drama and all that mess. And um, I knew I needed God, but I didn't feel comfortable there. And I sure as heck didn't want to get involved in a small group where they started asking questions about my life, you know? Um, and so for a couple months, I continued to go to church with her and just went to worship service. 
And she said, you know, you've been doing this for a couple months. You really need to find a group to get involved in because you're just sitting here, you know, while we're going to class. And so she said, there's a guy, he's upstairs in the balcony and he's teaching a class. He wrote this book. You really should go to his class. So I finally go up there and, um, it is the same guy that they had sent me for counseling who I couldn't stand <laughs> because I came for my counseling and I didn't get my list. And because I had verbally told him every bad thing I had done in my life, he knew it all. And so that's how he introduced me to his class was, this is Jennifer. She's on drug court. You know, she's got two children out of wedlock. And I thought I would just die right then and there. Um, in his defense, he's a very blunt person. In his defense, he did go around the room and say, you know, this is so-and-so. They went through a divorce and this is somebody else. They're on house arrest. And what he was trying to do was kind of get me past myself and this whole idea that I had all the problems in the world and nobody else had problems. And he told me later that day, he said, you know, everybody here's got problems. If you just talk to him for five minutes, you'll figure it out. And so that, that group of friends that I made in that classroom still to this day are, are some of my very best friends. But um, we eventually went on a date many months later and um, went to a ministry event together. And he told me, he said, um, you know, I like you. I'd like to go on a date with you. And who knows, maybe one day we'll get married and raise your two children to be ours. And I thought, you are the strangest person I have ever spoken to because I wasn't used to guys who did that. I was used to guys who wanted to run a game. They certainly don't, didn't want to get married. They sure as heck didn't want to raise children. And um, I wasn't used to that. And God showed me over the next few days that um, he had put a man of character in my life, but because I was so damaged, I couldn't see it. So after a couple of days of praying about that, I agreed to go on a date. And um with him, he was waiting on God to give him a clearance to go on a date. So he waited five years, not a date, not anything, because he was waiting on God to give him a clearance. So I entered the picture and he got a clearance. So he's excited. I, I'm gone, you know. So we go on this date and uh, he wants to hold my hand. I'm like, I'm not holding your hand. I'm just here for the chicken dinner. We'll see how things go. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. But um, he had waited and he was waiting on God to give him clearance and God gave him a clearance that he could move forward. So many months later, we ended up getting engaged and got married and um, went to pastor the church together. I ended up going back to school, getting three degrees, getting my master's degree and starting my own business. And God has blessed us on every step of the way. Amen. Wow. That's beautiful. I mean, and now you guys minister together, right? And I'm looking at the poster behind you. And it's Club Meth to Christ. So tell us about your ministry. Uh, Club Meth to Christ, uh, we, we are a 501c3 nonprofit. And God had told me to write a book called Club Meth to Christ. And uh, it was just my life story showing how God took me through the process of the sin, of course, surrender my life to Christ. Uh, and then and your testimony really begins is when you get born again. You know, you're dead to the old life and then you begin this new life. And and the book shows the process of God taking through college and walking by faith and God passing open these doors, giving me my wife and just just showing uh, principles throughout, which are scriptural. I backed it up with scripture all the way through it, showing there's biblical principles in my life and how to be set free. And everyone who uh, who follows these principles in the scripture can, can walk in freedom also. And, and I we do prison ministry across the nation with the, both the books I wrote. 
Clemester Christ, and also once an addict now free. And people across the nation got thousands of letters. They always tell me, your story sounds like my story. And it, what it is, it's sin. Different places, doing different things, but it's sin. But with sin, it's the same answer every time, which is sure. Christ Jesus. You know, Jesus Christ. Amen. And could you just tell us the name of your book one more time? Books? The, uh, well, I've got, you can see it, Love Meth to Christ and Once an Addict, Now Free. Uh, and free they are. We uh, we give these books away to inmates across the nation. And uh, you can go to our website, clubmeth2christ.com, just the name of the book. Just contact us with your information. We'll send you a free book, you know. Uh, yes, there's a place to make a donation, but, you know, we, we, we send them out free. You know, that's that's what we do. All we need is the contact information, full address, and we... We put them in the mail, no questions asked. You know, we just want to see people free, right. free from their sin of addiction. Amen. Amen. So, Rodney, the promise that Jesus made to you when you were a little boy, do you believe you would have gotten there sooner had you had not taken drugs? Because now you are at the point, it looks like, where God wants you. Do you think you would have gotten there sooner had you had avoided all these yeah. drugs? Well, you know, that's a good question. You know, uh, you know I always say that Jesus you know, crucified before the foundation of the world. I believe God knew the choices I would make before the beginning of time, whatever created me, the bad choices I would make, but also the lifestyle that I live, being broken and then fully surrendered. I don't know if I would live a normal life if I could have ever got fully surrendered like I am now. Because mm -hmm. there's nothing in the world that, that I'm chasing after. I've tried it. I know it will never satisfy me, never complete me. And uh, yeah, so I'm fully sold out for Lord Jesus Christ. I'm all his. And I'm not sure, you know, and I can't say it because I didn't experience it, but I, I don't believe I would ever have gotten sold out as I am now if I'd never experienced what I experienced and went through what I went through. So, you know, uh, but God is using me now in a mighty way. And, uh, you know, we've led thousands of people to Christ and, uh, you know, stories being aired around the world. Uh, and, and, you know, and my last breath, I pray, pray to God, just my last breath, I want to be preaching your word, preaching the gospel, and then bring me home, you know, uh, when it's my time to come home. That's what I want to be doing. I want to be preaching. Amen. Rodney and Jennifer, you both had a past of addiction. Could you end this out on a prayer for those who are addicted to anything whatsoever? Could you just lead us in a prayer for those to be delivered? Yes. Um, let's pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we ask that you forgive us of our sin, the sin of addiction, or we've chosen something of this world over you. Right now, we turn from this sin and ask you to take this desires, the things that we uh, have pursued after other than you, and we turn to the cross of Jesus Christ, the blood that he shed as payment in full for all my sin, past, present, and future. Today I receive the forgiveness of all my sins. I, I take the Holy Spirit. I receive the Holy Spirit today into my life. I am now a follower of Jesus Christ this day forward. I will serve you and I will live for you. 
I will get in your word and allow the Holy Spirit to take me and to cleanse me and to make me into your image. I pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And if you pray this and meant it with the heart, the Lord God will save you and give you a new spirit and you can begin this journey. And it's a process of getting into his word, getting plugged into a spirit-filled Bible-believing church and pressing into the presence of God. Jennifer and Rodney, thank you so much. Thank you so much for doing this wonderful interview. And I know so many people's lives are going to be changed because of it. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for allowing us to uh, be on your show. And you are one of the best interviewers I've ever, uh, you're in depth, you know, you you really get in. So I just want to compliment you on that, you know, that you do a really good job. Thank you so much. That means so much. Thank you so much, Rodney and Jennifer. You guys are amazing. A power couple. Just keep doing what you're doing. God is blessing you. As long as you keep staying in the word of God and doing what he has you to do, sky's the limit.